And the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Jesus was talking to his disciples about a dishonest, shrewd manager. And he finishes it with, you cannot serve God and wealth. Now Luke tells us nearby were some Pharisees, who Luke says love money and wealth. And they overheard Jesus say, you cannot serve God and wealth. And they began to mock him because, well, everyone knows that if you're wealthy, God has clearly blessed you with wealth. And therefore you have served God and wealth. And so what Jesus is saying is rubbish. And Jesus responds to this mocking by saying things like, you shouldn't try to enter, you shouldn't try to enter heaven by force. And talking about the importance of the law and the prophets, Torah and prophets. And don't divorce your wife. And then he tells the story about a rich guy without a name and a poor man who begged at his gates called Lazarus. A story we know well. Now here's the thing. How many of you know stories where the person who does most of the action and is rich doesn't have a name and the poor person who doesn't really do anything in the story does have a name? That's a pretty unusual thing, isn't it? The rich man, who knows who he was, but the poor man, his name was Lazarus. And what is even stranger is that the poor man actually plays no real part in the story. Unlike Mr. Super Rich Guy, who doesn't have a name, who is kind of the centre of the action. He doesn't notice Lazarus. He doesn't offer hospitality. He doesn't offer any compassion or generosity. He just doesn't see him. Because this rich guy is just way too self-absorbed. He's way too busy being super rich. And we know he's super rich because he's got purple clothes. And purple clothes were the most expensive. The purple dye was the most expensive, and only the super rich and empress wore it. Which is why our bishops wear it. I'm not sure what's going on there. And so, this Mr. Super Rich guy is just way too busy making a name for himself in the world, and he has no time for smelly beggars lying around at his gate dying. And even though Torah and the prophets and the society in which he lived suggested that maybe a little bit of generosity might be the honourable act, the honourable way to go, Mr. Super Rich Guy just gets on with his own agenda. And then Lazarus dies. Hooray! No more smelly beggars at the gate cluttering up the place with his destitution. And then Mr. Super Rich Guy dies, and one goes to Abraham, and one doesn't. Which is also a bit of a twist, because the super rich are supposed to be the ones that go to heaven, because, well, God bless them. 
Now, just as a side note, this is not a story about heaven and hell. Some people want to tell you that it's a story about heaven and hell. We heard about that on Tuesday. This was a story about heaven and hell. But it's not a story about heaven and hell. This is a story where Jesus used some common ideas about what happens after death to provide a framework for a story. And when we get hung up on the framework, we miss the story. So don't get hung up on the framework. The framework is there, but it's not the point of the story. The point of the story is what happens between Mr. Super Rich Guy and Lazarus and Abraham. So, here they both are. One in the bosom of Abraham and one in Hades. See, Hades isn't a Hebrew term, isn't it? That's a Greek term. And it just means the place where everyone who dies goes. The underworld. So, it's not really hell. It's just the place where people go. But it's not a good place. And the focus of the story is still on Mr. Super Rich Guy, who still has no name, and Lazarus, who does have a name, but is still silent. And then the nameless Mr. Super Rich Guy looks way up and sees Lazarus with Abraham, which is how he thought it was all going to pan out, because he thought because he was super rich, he'd be with Abraham, and the poor guy, well, he should be down there. But... That didn't happen. And he is in agony. So he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus down. Have you noticed that? He pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus down. He doesn't say to Lazarus, Look, I'm really sorry. I treated you really badly when we were alive. You were at my gate, really hungry and thirsty, and I never came out there and gave you any of the food from under my table, which actually I was supposed to do, and I never gave you any water because you were really thirsty. In fact, I just ignored you and hoped that you would die, which you did, but I'm really sorry about that. I was such an ass, and I was just wondering if you would mind coming down here and putting some water on my tongue, because I'm now the one who's in misery. Now. Nah. No apology. Still doesn't speak to Lazarus. He speaks to Abraham and says, See that poor guy there? Would you mind sending him down? Because I'm not very good here and it would be quite good if he could bring some water to me. Would that be okay? Still not seeing Lazarus. No different from when he was alive, really. Still really absorbed with himself and his goings-on, which at the moment aren't going that well. In fact, at no point does Mr. Super Rich Guy address Lazarus. Well, Abraham says, no, child. Each gets the rewards they deserve from our lives. And besides, there is a great chasm between you and us, so that you can't get to us and we can't get to you. Now, the interesting thing about that chasm was... It's exactly the same chasm that Mr. Super Rich Guy put in place while he was alive. Exactly the same chasm that prevented him from seeing, at any point, Lazarus as a human being, as a child of God. He was just smelly, dying beggar at the gate. And that chasm went with them to the afterlife. But it was there when they were alive. They just took it with them. 
And then we have this wink-wink, nudge-nudge ending to the story where Mr. Super Rich Guy says, well, could Lazarus go and warn his brothers and sisters? Those of you who know the story would have thought, it just says brothers in the Bible, which it does, but the Greek term is for brothers and sisters, and I thought, well, you know, let's get the sisters in there as well, so I included it when I read the Gospel. But strictly speaking, that's not there, but it is there in the Greek. Now, Abraham says, well, they have the Torah and the prophets. You know, those things you ignored while you were alive and just paid no heed to, they have that. And Mr. Super Rich Guy says, well, that's not enough. Clearly, I didn't pay any attention and neither are they. But if someone would come back from the dead, well then, we'd all pay attention. And we all know that somebody did come back from the dead. So it's the wink, wink, nudge, nudge moment of the story. Well, suddenly at that point, we find ourselves in the story. I wonder if you've ever realised that. We are the brothers and sisters. See, at this point, Jesus and Luke are talking to the hearers of their story. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are mocking him because he said you can't serve God and wealth. And Luke is talking to his hearers. And we are his hearers. We stand alongside that community that originally heard his gospel down through the ages to us. We are the brothers and sisters. And Luke is saying to us, well, you have the law and the prophets that require mercy and generosity. And you have Jesus, who did come back from the dead. So the question then was and is, are we listening? And what are we listening to? Now, one of the traps with this story is to see it as a story about what we need to do to get into heaven. And from this story, that would be to show generosity and compassion. And if we do that, it's all good, we'll get into heaven. Great! The only trouble is, if we read the story in terms of what we need to do to get into heaven, in fact, we are no different from Mr. Super Rich Guy. Even when we show generosity and compassion. See, the problem with Mr. Super Rich Guy was at no point did he really see Lazarus. He never saw him as a person with a name, which we know, but he didn't. With a family, with a story. It's no accident that Jesus used the poor man's name and not the rich man's. He was making a point there. Most importantly, Mr. Super Rich Guy never saw Lazarus as a child of Abraham or a child of God. He was just either smelly, dying beggar at the gate who was a bit of a nuisance or poor person next to Abraham who could do him some help either by bringing water or going back to his brothers and sisters. But at no point did he see Lazarus as Lazarus, a person. And that's our danger. When we do things for others, and then we feel good because we've done things for others, 
we begin to see other people as, well, when I do things, something good for you, and I feel good, they become a means of my self-fulfillment, a means of me feeling good about myself. Look at me, I'm so good. I help that person. And we stop seeing that other person as a person with a name and a family and a story, a child of God, belonging to God. We end up doing things for ourselves so that we feel good or we get into heaven or whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying that showing compassion isn't a good thing. It clearly is a really good thing. But the story is talking about more than that. Now, most of you know that I'm a member of the Third Order of the Society of St. Francis. And each day we are invited, expected, to reflect on our rule, on our rule of life, on the Order's rule of life. And it's helpfully broken up into little daily readings for easy reflection. Easy to find the day that you're supposed to reflect on. The reflection itself is less easy. And so day eight, which is about our second aim, the second aim being to spread the spirit of love and harmony... The first one being to make Jesus known and loved everywhere, and the third one being to live simply. So, day eight, second, uh, where we look at the second aim, continuing to look at the second aim, says, We as members of the third order fight against all injustices in the name of Christ, in whom there can neither be Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for in him all are one. Our chief object is to reflect that openness to all which, is, which was characteristic of Jesus. And here's the crunchy bit. This can only be achieved in a spirit of chastity, which sees others as belonging to God and not as a means of self-fulfillment. Being chaste. Now we usually think about chaste as not having sex, don't we? We don't really have it in a wider context. And actually there are a whole lot of Franciscans who really struggle with this because they go, why is this talking about not having sex? And we go, well, you need to read that whole sentence because the whole sentence says, this can only be achieved in a spirit of chastity which sees others as belonging to God and not as a means of self-fulfillment. That's what chastity is. Seeing others as belonging to God and not as a means of self-fulfillment. Which when applied to sex, is all about how we treat other people who are belonging to God and not as a means of our self-fulfillment. Being chaste, then, is at the heart of the calling of the Franciscans. Seeing everyone, everyone, as belonging to God. Which is a lot easier to say than to do. In this story, Mr. Super Rich Guy at no point was chaste. He saw others, and particularly Lazarus, only in terms of what they could do for him. In the first part of the story, by going away, dying, that was helpful. And in the second part of the story, by coming and bringing water to him or by going to warn his brothers and sisters. But at no point did Mr. Super Rich Guy ever see Lazarus as a person. Belonging to God. And that one thing, quite a big thing, led to his undoing. 
And that one thing will lead to our undoing as well. Because that one thing is the biggest temptation, isn't it? Being hooked into doing things for our self-fulfillment rather than that person belongs to God and has a name and a family and a story. Even when we are offering compassion and generosity, that temptation is always, always there. And it's the one thing we need to keep watching out for. Last weekend at Synod, one of the people, uh, one of the priests went through the, um, all the parish stats. Um, ours looked fantastic because somewhere in our book in there, we'd added 5,000 people attending church. So we had 9,500 people attending church last year. Hooray! And even with that, no one commented on that, that we had been so magnificent, which was a little disappointing. Uh, and, uh, but even with that, the diocesan numbers attending church had still gone down. And at the end of his speech, the guy said, and our job is to reverse that and get more people coming to church and more baptism, confirmation, everything else. Now the problem with that is, when our goal is to just get more people coming to church... Is, which all go, oh, that makes us feel good, doesn't it? When we have more people at church and we have more money in the bank so we're more financially viable and we have more children, which is, well, it's okay because they make lots of noise so we don't like the noise, but we do like the idea of having lots of children and it's great when we have a youth ministry because that makes us feel really good. You know, we've got a youth ministry, we've got young people and we have a future and it's all about us in the end, isn't it? It's actually no different from Mr. Super Rich Guy. Because we are just seeing those people as a means of our own self-fulfillment. Our own, we're going to continue, isn't that great? And I actually think that is the problem. Rather than seeing people as people belonging to God and starting there. And so, I invite us then to think about how we see other people. Are we being chased as individuals and as a church? And what does it look like when we are chased?